production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted, yes, it's okay to clap, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's a beautiful afternoon. We couldn't have asked for a better day, could we? It's Friday, August 11th, and I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, Director of Engaged Journalism and Health Coverage at IdeaStream Public Media. And we are here live outdoors under the chandelier at Playhouse Square. How about that? This is the second forum in City Club's free Friday forums this August, ahead of their move into their new Playhouse Square headquarters next month. If you'd like to learn more about the City Club's move, please visit cityclub.org. And if you ever wanted to come to a Friday forum, we'd be delighted to see you right here next Friday, same time, same place. For today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. David Margolius, Director of Public Health for the City of Cleveland. Let's hear it for Dr. Margolius. He has lots of fans and supporters out here today. The notion of equitable public health seeks to address any disparities that affect an individual's ability to achieve optimal health. While public health inequities are not a new concept, public health policies, environmental conditions, and even your zip code can impact impact residents' quality of life and actual life expectancies. Health equity requires dismantling systems that lead to inequities and providing additional resources to communities that need it most. Currently, equitable health is a goal that many are working towards with physicians such as Dr. Margolius striving to make it a reality. Dr. Margolius was appointed as the Director of Public Health for the City of Cleveland in 2022. Prior to that, he served as the Division Director of General Internal Medicine at MetroHealth. An active educator, Dr. Margolius is an adjunct associate professor in the School of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University and was faculty co-lead for the Medical Director Leadership Institute at Harvard Medical School's Center for Primary Care. Dr. Margolius's work has been published in several peer-reviewed journals on a wide range of public health topics, from COVID-19 response in underserved communities to best practices in primary care and prevention and family medicine. If you have any questions for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541. 5794. And City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me again in welcoming Dr. David Margolius. 
Dr. Margolius, we're here to talk about health inequities today, but I wanted to start with revisiting COVID-19. I know we're all kind of tired of COVID-19, but unfortunately the numbers seem to be rising again. Is this something we should be concerned about? Thank you, Marlene. Thanks for uh, having me, City Club. Thank you for being here, Department of Public Health. Woo woo. See you out there for the radio audience. There are millions <laughs> of people here. Um, so COVID-19 um, is an endemic virus now. It is in the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County in our country. And um, in Cleveland right now, cases have plateaued after months and months and months of going down. So I would say for most folks right now, they don't need to be worried about um, anything like we've experienced over the last two years. That's fantastic news. That's what we all wanted to hear, right? But one thing we do see out there is still discussion about vaccine, vaccinations. Should there be an annual vaccine similar to the flu shot? Is that something that we all should consider? So our, our focus at, at the department has really been on that first dose for folks, you know, that, that vaccine for someone who's never gotten one before. It's so much more effective than not getting a vaccine. Um, the second dose is, is more effective than the third. The third is more effective than the fourth, and, and I'll stop there. And so for most folks, as long as they've gotten one updated booster, they're good to go. And I know our focus here is to talk about health inequities, so I can't leave this discussion about COVID-19 without talking about marginalized communities. So how are we doing in the city of Cleveland in reaching marginalized communities with that message of the first dose? Since uh, really over the last year, every single week, hundreds of people are making the decision to get their first dose of vaccine. Um, it's slowed down a little bit, but we're at 58% of the city of Cleveland of residents who have gotten at least one dose. So our goal was 60%, um, but I'm really proud of the work of our department. I'm proud of our city. And it's worth noting that deaths from COVID are, are rare right now in the city of Cleveland. That's great news, so glad to hear that. So let's move to talking about smoking. I know one of the issues that you're very concerned about is flavored cigarettes, flavored vape products, menthol products. So what's the current state? There's been a lot of work going on on the state level um, to try to get a handle around this issue. What's going on at the state house? Yeah, so so much. Um, I'll just say as a, as a segue from, from COVID to smoking, in 2020, COVID killed 500,000. 500,000 folks in the United States. It was the, the number one cause of death. Every single year for 20, 30 years, smoking has killed 500,000 people a year. So COVID did that in 2020. Every single year, smoking has done that to, to our country. We need to take that same energy that we brought to COVID and bring it to what is now the number one leading cause of death in the United States. So flavored tobacco is, is a big part of that. And, and in the city of Cleveland, we have the highest smoking rate in the country at 35%. The wow, rest of the wow. Let's, let's just stop there for a minute. Okay. You said the highest in the country? 35% of adults in the city of Cleveland have had a cigarette in the last 30 days. The rest of the country mm -hmm. is 
Over the last 20 years, the rest of the country went from 20% to 11%, while the city of Cleveland has gone up from 30 to 35%. So what do you think is behind that? Because there's been so much public education around the issue of smoking, that smoking is harmful, and to your point, other people in the country seem to be receiving that message because the numbers are coming down. So what's going on uniquely in Cleveland that the numbers are going up? Yeah, we've been targeted in, in Cleveland. It's no accident that we're at 35%. So I grew up in the 90s, and smoking was a big part of that public health messaging. And, and um, you know, by that point, it was illegal to advertise cigarettes on television, on radio, and even billboards after 1997. I remember that, yes. Right. But when all of those laws went into effect to protect the majority of United States residents, Big Tobacco pivoted and they said, all right, we're losing our white smokers, so we've got to go after new smokers. And the new smokers they went after are black smokers, poor smokers, and the youth. In fact, a tobacco executive in describing that strategy said, when someone asked him if he smoked, he said, no, 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 we reserve that right for the young, the poor, the stupid, and the black. Wow. That was captured by someone, that like was on captured. the records? It's in the New York Times. So Cleveland, with us being a majority black city, was a target for big tobacco. They put more advertisements in our community, more promotional giveaways, uh, just a targeted marketing predatory effort um, that basically uh, was a racial justice and is a racial justice issue attacking our community. Now, what's the connection between the targeting of their marketing and uh, to poor and minority communities and menthol cigarettes specifically? So in the 1950s, of black smokers, 5% smoked menthols. Um, over the next 50 years, now it's almost 90% of black smokers that smoke menthols, and that was intentional. Oh my God, They 90%? found an opportunity and, wow. and they went for it. So They what, being big tobacco. Big tobacco. Right. So can you describe why menthol is so much worse than, I mean, cigarettes are bad, right? right. We all recognize that. Right. But what makes menthol even worse then? So menthol, because it has this flavor and a cough suppressant, allows people who smoke menthols to breathe deeper. It becomes more addictive, and it's then harder to quit because of that flavor, that menthol flavor. Additionally, when it first came out, menthol was sold as a, a health product. Hmm. And so the initial impression folks had with, with menthol cigarettes was, all right, this is a, an alternative to regular tobacco that doesn't cause you to cough as much. And folks know that you know, there were doctors in advertisements, the American Medical Association was a part of that. When all that became illegal, that's when they pivoted and said, all right, we're going for black urban smokers. And in the documents from Big Tobacco, it specifically calls out Cleveland as an opportunity market. But this almost sounds criminal. Why, why are they allowed to do this? Has nobody decided to do like a class action suit? We see so many of those. Right. Uh, you know, Big Tobacco got sued, 1997, master settlement agreement. 
Um, but unfortunately, and this is an example of structural racism, people stopped caring in the same way when it became a problem for black people as opposed to many other residents in, in our country. And the overwhelming sentiment on smoking is, didn't we deal with that already? Hmm. Hasn't that been fixed? And so in 2009, when every flavor of cigarettes was banned by the federal government, there was an exception made for menthol, <laughs> the black cigarette. And what was the rationale, or did they even provide one for that exception? I, you know, I, there are a couple different points of opposition. Um, one is that taking menthol cigarettes off the market will somehow um, cause more police interactions for black smokers. Okay, I'm sorry I didn't follow that one. Did you guys follow that one? <laughs> it would do what now? So they'd say, all right, putting this law on the books saying that menthol cigarettes can't be sold will put black people at jeopardy of more interactions with police, which could cause death. Are they saying there would be a black market or something like that? They are also saying there will be an illicit market um, that would bring menthol you know, out of the stores, onto the streets. But in the states and the cities and the countries that have passed this, this end of sales, there has not been an illicit dark market that developed. Well, one thing that uh, does still seem to be a concern for the larger community is flavored cigarettes and flavored vaping products, because that does impact more than the African community and poor communities. That's right. And to your question earlier about what's the state of Ohio doing during the budgeting process, they put in there at one point a ban on characterizing flavored vape products, which would mean like mango vape as opposed to tropical vape. Tropical vape would still be allowed, but mango vape would be illegal. And um, we know a lot of young people use these products. And to your point about targeting, there were some accusations that the flavored vaping products were targeted at young folks specifically. Absolutely. You know, uh, proponents of, of vaping products will say that they are harm reduction and that they help smokers quit. And that might be true for some people, but there's no reason to have a bubblegum flavored vape or a cotton candy flavored vape, which is the case right now. And I'll add that there are 600 tobacco retailers in the city of Cleveland, including vape stores. 600, that's one for every 600 residents. So th this isn't about harm reduction for, for big tobacco and big vape. Uh, but what's sad is the Ohio legislature was willing to make this compromise just about flavored vapes to protect youth, certain segments of the youth. Are we saying white youth? White youth, but they were not willing to end the sale of the most dangerous flavor, which has been menthol, killing 45,000 African Americans a year in the United States, 45,000. So since uh, there's been no action on this from the federal government and state government, to your point, is still making the exception and allowing menthol cigarettes. Some local municipalities have tried to do things on their own, including Cleveland. That's right. So what's happening with the local municipalities trying to take on this issue? Yeah, so Columbus is leading the charge. They passed theirs last year. It'll go into effect January 1st. It's a comprehensive uh, flavor ban, ending the sale of flavored products. Cleveland has introduced our law uh, by departmental request uh, in February. 
and uh, we're currently waiting for city council to give us a hearing so that we can turn this into a law. And you're behind that effort, right? Yes, the Department of Public Health uh, put in the request as a departmental request to end the sale of flavored tobacco products and set up a tobacco retail license system in the city of Cleveland. Now you're running into a lot of oppos a little bit of a opposition bit. on right, that. Right. Uh, Idea Stream uh, report health reporter Stephen Langell, who's in the audience today, shared with me that he spoke to Councilman Blaine Griffin, who is wondering about uh, you know if Cleveland does this alone, then what does that really mean? It just ends the sale in Cleveland, and people can easily go out to the suburbs. That's right. It does kind of has a point, right? Right, and, and to that I would say that two things. Number one, most smokers want to quit. Most smokers want to quit, it's just so hard. And when it's in your face all the time, it just makes it harder. So having flavored sales end in Cleveland and people having to get in their car or you know, go farther to get cigarettes will help some people quit, and that's our goal. Number two is city of Cleveland can do this. People die in the city of Cleveland 20 years before our peers in inner ring suburbs. Smoking is the leading cause of death. We can do this in Cleveland and you let me worry about Euclid and Shaker Heights and Warrensville Heights. We'll work on them next. Okay. But Cleveland's got to lead the way. All right, you're going to take it one at a time. That's right. You know, we, we've talked about it, but let's get really specific about the harmful nature of smoking. As you said, it ends lives early, but what else does it do? So it, it is the leading cause of death because of cancer and heart disease. And for those folks who want to quit, who need to hear this, 90 minutes after your last cigarette, your blood pressure improves. 90 days after your last cigarette, your lung function improves by 30%. You can breathe better, just 90 days. Nine years after your last cigarette, your chance of death from heart attack or stroke returns to that of someone who's never smoked. So the relief that you can get from quitting smoking is, is life-saving. Sounds like it's almost immediate when you stop. Pretty close, and, and you know that's the opportunity that we have here. Unlike many of the threats to public health in our community, we can do this. We can make a difference within just five years. We can improve the life expectancy in the city of Cleveland. So for the folks listening who are not part of uh, a minority community where the smoking levels are still really high and who understand the harmful nature of smoking, why should they care? Why should they care? Well, I'm a white man for, for the radio audience, and we should care because we're talking about people who are dying from a preventable cause. We can prevent it. And so you should care because we're talking about humans. We're talking about Clevelanders who, who we can save by this intervention. So to your point about the effort that we put into COVID-19, that was um, a pretty um, uniform. Heroic. Heroic. Uh, people on all sides. Energized. Stretch spectrum. Of course, there were the skeptics. But overall, it was a majority effort in our country. What's it going to take for, to your point, that same energy and focus and bipartisan nature to be focused on this smoking issue? Well, we need help getting the message out for sure. I think, you know, with public health, this is, this is the, 
the work that we do, we don't know the people that we're saving, right? If one person or 10 people quit smoking as a result of this or our advertisements, billboards, commercials that are going up, you know, we don't know whose life we've saved. And so that progress is slower and it's less tangible, but it's still meaningful and we got to get the word out. Well, I applaud you for taking this on from, and for leading this effort in the city of Cleveland. It's going to be an ongoing fight, and, right. and we'll continue to watch that. You know, one of the other systemic things that impacts health inequities in Cleveland is lead, lead poisoning, lead in homes. For years, people have heard about the issue in Cleveland that we have a major problem with lead in our homes. And the great news there is that that message has gotten out there, right. right? There seems to be a community-wide focus on lead abatement. Money came in from some of the great institutions in our community to do that work. And what's going on? I mean, what I'm hearing yeah. is that there's still not a lot of actual lead removal going on in Cleveland. Why not? Well, there is, and, and I will say, you know, the history of our department is back in 2015, um, thanks to amazing reporting by Rachel DeSalle and Bree Zeltner, they uncovered that our health department had a backlog of 3,000 cases that had not been investigated. I am proud to say, with our team, you know, leading the charge, our backlog is consistently zero our no contact rate when we reach out to affected families is 9% or less. Uh, and, and we continue to do great work on helping families get through this. Unfortunately, we still come across at least 200 kids a year in the city of Cleveland affected by lead poisoning. So there's a lot more to do and we need more people to do that work. And for those who don't know, why is this so insidious, especially when it comes to children? Yeah, in the city of Cleveland, it's our homes. Our homes that were built before 1978 with that lead paint, are a lot of them are crumbling. And it's expensive to repair them. And there are a lot of out-of-state landlords that would rather quickly flip the home to somebody else, a different LLC, rather than investing in, in the tenants, the people who live in those homes. And so we've got to do a better job as a city of holding those folks accountable. So what does it do to a child when they're exposed to lead at an early age in the home? Maybe they're eating paint chips or something like that. What does that do to the development of a child? Lead poisoning of any level, anything above zero or one, causes irreversible neurotoxicity, causes problems with the brain that leads to all sorts of uh, learning disabilities later in life. So you've gotten rid of the backlog. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. But we still have an issue here in the community of getting people, getting enough people to do the work of the lead right. abatement in, in, how, in homes. Can you talk about why we're we're sort of having an issue there. Yeah, we have workforce challenges um, in every sector, you know, in our economy. And so we need people who are willing to do the work, people who are trained to do the work, people who are supported through that training um, so that, you know, if they have a different job that they're able to leave that job, get paid while they're getting trained to be able to do this work. Uh, and the other group that needs to step up is, is people who own homes as landlords. 
you know, they need to uh, register their property. They need to ensure that their property is lead safe before humans live in their property. Um, and we need to build more and more safe and affordable housing across Cleveland. So is there money there to help the landlords? The money is there through the Lead Safe uh, Coalition. They're doing incredible work. The people are there, and we just got to speed up everything and, and keep up that urgency. So just like every other you know, place in town that's saying they can't find workers, that, that's affecting this effort as well. That's a challenge, and you know things are getting better. I want folks to be optimistic about it, but it, it takes time, and, and we got to keep our focus on it. Okay, we're gonna keep working that one. Now let's talk about an issue that impacts all of us and something that I'm particularly concerned about, and I'm sure everybody here is, gun violence in our community. And uh, years ago, people like you declared gun violence a public health issue. Right. Some people think of it as a criminal-ish, crime issue, a policing issue, criminal justice issue. It is all of that as well, Absolutely. but it's also a public health issue. And one that is very difficult for us to come up with strategies around because we need local and federal legislators, right? That's right, and like cigarettes, you know, where locally we can do something about the supply coming into our community, we can't do that with guns. I mean, it's just awful what the, federal government, lack of it, you know, the inaction, inaction at the state level to do something about it. Um, but locally, you know, what we can do is prevention, secondary prevention, we're in the thick of it in terms of increased law enforcement um, to, to help get some of those guns off the street. But we know that there are certain conditions like condemned homes, like, um, parks that, that don't feel safe for people that we can change as a city to prevent gun violence. And so it's all hands on deck to, to make progress. Can you connect the dots for us there? How does fixing a condemned home help with gun violence? Sure, so there's this incredible randomized trial um, where in one city they went block by block. One block they fixed the condemned homes, one block they didn't. and as a result, they saw reduced gun violence on the block that they fixed those condemned homes, demolished them, or rehabbed them, whatever they needed to do, and the, you know, the same gun violence uh, in the control group. And so we know that prevention works, that building and housing, community development, you know, we're all, we all can play a part in this. But when it's gotten as bad as it is, you know, it's, just, it's, it's hard for that message to get out when we're in the thick of it like we are now. Yes, and people are concerned because they hear about uh, rising shootings in areas of town where they're not used to hearing right. about shootings. Unfortunately, when you live in Cleveland, every weekend you know there's going to be gun violence and there's going to be reports on Monday morning about there was gun violence in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. But when it happens downtown or in areas where people use for recreation, then there becomes a new sense of urgency around it. Right, right. And it's absolutely concerning. We're on pace for 180 deaths from, from gun violence in the city. Um, and it's 
one of many causes uh, of, of death in Cleveland. And I want to bring that same urgency that we're bringing to gun violence that we brought to COVID to the other leading, leading causes of death in, in Cleveland. So what about the people who are committing the gun violence? We know, in, you know it's, it's different in different communities, right? But we know in urban communities, we know who, for the most part, who's committing the gun violence. Are there efforts to target the people who are, are doing the shootings, who are uh, you know, creating the, the chaos in different communities? Yeah, I, you know, I, there are efforts that are cross-agency right now to find those hotspot communities, blocks, corners, stores um, that are associated with higher violence. And then there's the effort, which is just as important to understand what has led someone to violence. Um, for folks who watched that video of the 12 through 17 year olds at, at the gas station, kind of, you know, shooting the uh, guns randomly into the air, you know, how, what happened to those, those children for them to act in that, in that way? And so, um, you know, that work of understanding and preventing is slower work, but it's, it's just as important, and that's the public health approach. Yeah, it's interesting to me that when, uh, like, there's a mass shooting incident, for example, somebody walks into a mall and, and kills a bunch of people, we do focus on who is the shooter. Right. Like, what was the motivation? Right. What was their background? How are they raised? Who are their parents? Right. And that we, was, that's structural racism. I mean, those, those shooters tend to be white, and the press publishes a, a picture of them and you know, their Sunday finest. Um, but when it's being done by kids who are black, I think there's less of an effort to, to find that story and we need to change that. Yeah, figure out who they are. That's right. What was the motivation? That's right. And, and more importantly, what could be done to intervene? I know that there are efforts in our community though to do violence interruption. I know Metro Health has been engaged in this space. Is that something that you think we need more of? Absolutely, it's crucial. So that's that secondary prevention. After the violence has happened, how can we get in there and help prevent retaliation or further violence? And so Metro's doing great there, University Hospital, the violence interrupters in our community. And so just all hands on deck and, and bringing that same urgency to this work. We probably could use a little more funding there though. We could always use more funding. <laughs> Well, because one thing I heard is that sometimes these programs that are focused on violence prevention, they're often, often funded by grants. So it's difficult to do like long range planning when you're funded by grants or knowing that you'll, you have security in that job. Well, it depends on the, the length of the grant, but for sure, it's a challenge. Okay. So we are about at the halfway point here, so I'm going to stop and share again that I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, Director of Engaged Journalism and Health Coverage at IdeaStream Public Media. We're joined by Dr. David Margolius, Public Health Director at the City of Cleveland, talking about equity in public health. We're just about to begin the Q&A with the audience. We welcome questions for every, from everyone, city club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or live on our radio broadcast at 89.7 WKSU Idea Stream Public Media.
If you would like to text a question for our speaker, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And City Club staff will try to work it into the program. So do we have our first question? Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I really love uh, today's forum because we have a broad range of the topics in public health. So I would like to provide two. One is more visible and very, very harmful, mold. All the housing stocks we have in Cleveland are old. Mold actually is not an issue less than lead. So I would like to answer on that. The other one is not exactly visible, mental health issues. Mm. It doesn't matter if somebody with means or without means. People still are prevented to go to seek help because mental health are not considered as common, well received as physical health issues. You will go to see a doctor immediately when you have a belly ache, but you would not go to see a doctor when you feel you are so sleepy, no appetite for long term, and you don't want to do things with people, with the people even you love around you. Something like that. Of course, we do have a more severe kinds. So I would like the doctor to answer these two. Okay, two really big important issues. Let's start with mold. Um, she's absolutely right. Mold in your house is, is just as harmful to your health. So how are we doing on mold with our older housing stock in Cleveland? Mold is a problem. Thank you, Lou. Hi, Lou. Um, so mold, mold is a problem. It goes back to housing stock and, and just having as much safe and affordable housing as possible. And for more and more people, um, to own and rent homes to, to care about their tenants. And so I definitely appreciate that question. Uh, number two on mental health, I mean, you called it, it's, it's stigma is a huge issue for people to, you know, the profession in healthcare to separate out physical health and mental health when it's all tied together. It shouldn't be paid differently. It, it shouldn't be thought of differently. Um, it, treatment works for, for mental health treatment works and it's really important that people feel safe and comfortable and able to access treatment. And the other part of that too is, is the conditions. The conditions that, that we're in in the city of Cleveland lead to further mental health challenges and so it's important that we continue to work on creating pathways for generational wealth, creating job opportunities, housing opportunities that are better than the status quo. So thanks Lou. So how are we doing in Cleveland in terms of mental health beds? I know that's always an issue in all communities. Do we have enough uh, patient beds for people here in Cleveland? I don't have a great answer on um, supply and demand for inpatient mental health beds, but across the board, we need help with mental health workforce. People who want to do this work, who are paid well enough to do the work, um, and, and want to stay in Cleveland. and so. Uh, we've got some exciting announcements coming about that work and, and more to come. Okay. So I know, like every other profession, people who do that work were so impacted during the COVID period. That's right. And there were a lot of workers lost there. So there's a lot to make up 
in that workforce. workforce. Absolutely. I mean, what healthcare and all of us have been through over the last three years is draining. Um, And I think we're starting to rebound from that. And, you know, you'll see that I really try and emphasize community and ending social isolation, which is why sometimes, you know, I'll say, hey, don't worry so much about COVID. It's more important to get together, to be out at events like this, to eat lunch with your your coworkers, um, because all of that is connected. All right, let's see if we have another question out here. Yes, we have a text question. It says, alcohol consumption rates have increased among certain populations during the pandemic and seems to still be higher than pre-pandemic numbers. What health outcomes are you seeing here with millennials and Gen Z generations? Mm, another COVID-related question. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So uh, alcohol consumption certainly leads to terrible health outcomes. Um, We've got higher rates of suicidal ideation and mental health problems altogether, which tie closely with uh, overconsumption of alcohol. And so, the, you know, the data's not good. Um, which doesn't give us a whole lot of hope, but all the things that we've talked about are things that we're working on, which will hopefully make things better. another text question. Okay. (laughs) Dr. David, can you talk about the community health improvement plan and collaboration between public health, health systems, federally qualified health centers, and happy community health center week? Okay. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You might want to break that one down. Take it in pieces. (laughs) National Health Center week is August 6th through August 12th. So thank you to uh, uh, that caller for pointing that one out. Um, So, The city and the county each have health departments. Over time, these departments have not always worked together, as as folks know. In fact, um, several times, uh, folks have suggested, consultants and others have suggested that our two departments merge. Mm -hmm. Our mayor even campaigned on that um, before uh, he took the job. I will say that we're at a place that we've never been before with the county health department. Uh, Dr. Rod Harris, who's the commissioner of health there, and I meet once a month and regularly collaborate, look at our community health improvement plan, and figure out ways that we can each work to the strengths of our departments to to make our community healthier. Because there are some places where there is no delineation. There's no city and county. There's just one for the county. And I think people were thinking in terms of efficiencies there that you could, you know, eliminate some redundancies. So why not eliminate those redundancies? Well, the big why not is we've got 130 incredible people at the Cleveland Department of Public Health who um, really deserve uh, to to be honored in in the work that they're doing. We run the countywide air quality surveillance, which folks now you know, have a good sense of, of what that work looks like thanks to an unfortunate summer from the Canadian wildfires. Um, smoking in the city of Cleveland is an issue where it's really not as much of an issue in the rest of the county, um, which is good for them, bad for us. And so there are lots of unique health needs in the city of Cleveland that um, were highly qualified to, to take on. And um, I'm proud of the work we're doing. And I at least for the last year or so, I haven't heard much talk of, of this concept of a merger, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Oh, that's probably because of your great leadership. 
And the team. And the team. <laughs> I mean, they've really been here the whole time, and so it's, um, I'm just happy they're here today, and, and they, they've, they've been through a lot, and I'm really proud of them. Well, I have to say, just as a member of the news media, we've seen a huge difference in terms of response from the department since you took over, so thank you so much for that. Thank you. I think we have another question. Um, hello, my name is Kyle Williams, and I go to MC Square 7 High School, and I am very honored to come here. And my question was, do you think that there will be a ban on alcohol-related products, such as, well, I can't really think of any, but like any alcohol-related products, products, just like how it is with the ban on menthol? Thanks, Kyle. That's, that's a great question, and that comes up a lot. There are so many unhealthy products out in the community. Why don't we you know, ban the sale of all of them? And the truth is that, you know, number one, smoking is that leading cause of death, which is why we're focused there. And number two, we are borrowing a proven public health intervention with the end to the sale of flavored tobacco products. It's worked really well in California. It's going to work well in Columbus. It's worked well in Canada, in Massachusetts. Um, and so as soon as I see something that works just as well, or we see something that works just as well with alcohol or another product, we'll explore that as well. Interesting question. I see another person at the mic. Good afternoon, Doc. Uh, you're getting high marks from your predecessors. I've talked to some of them. Matt Carroll, you're doing really good work. Question, what outreach have you done with the African-American community, the black churches, undertakers, uh, hair salons, and uh, beauty shops? In terms of what? Outreach in, what, in any specific Re area? Regarding the uh, lead smoking. Lead and smoking, okay. Thank you for that question. And uh, yeah, Matt Carroll was, was one of the people that nudged me to apply for this job, so I'm, I'm grateful to him. Mm -hmm. So the black faith leaders in this community have been really involved in, in this work. Um, I'm gonna make a terrible mistake by starting to shout out some. I'm just gonna go for it. <laughs> uh, but Dr. C.J. Matthews, Bishop Ward, Bishop Minor, uh, Vincent Stokes, Dr. Vincent Stokes have all been active members at the table as we take on this work on uh, reducing the impact of tobacco in our community and lead poisoning. So I think his question was um, what, around, are there specific outreach efforts? You're working with those wonderful leaders, that's fantastic. But what other uh, outreach efforts are going on specifically in the black community? Are there any that you could point to? Yes, and thank you for that prompt because I would uh, certainly not want to miss the opportunity to shout out the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition Executive Director Yvonne Hall, who's been beating the drum on menthol cigarettes for years, you know, before it, it became cool to, to fight this fight. Yes, we receive her press releases quite often. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Ivanka. <laughs> yeah, so she and I were, uh, were on the Sound of Ideas um, back in February about this topic. Um, but we're doing all sorts of work, showing up at community events. Um, the black faith leaders have been um, uh, at their pulpit on, on Sundays and making the plea to their congregations. and helping people get connected to cessation resources, which is really important because we're not out to get smokers, right? We're out to help people quit. People want to quit smoking and we're here to help make that easier. Okay, fantastic. Let's moving on to our next question. Hi, good afternoon. Um, good afternoon, Dr. David and our wonderful anchor. My name is Emmanuel Amadu and um, an outgoing president at Cuyaga Community College. And for someone like me that is very passionate about mental health, and um, before my coming to Cleveland, I've collaborated with 
a lot of um, nonprofit agencies and all that abroad, you know, frontlining mental health awareness and working with survivors and all that. So um, what, I don't know how you would advise me as one who is passionate and ready to uh, join forces with your agencies or anyone you recommend me to, to be able to contribute to uh, Cleveland's growth as regards mental health. Great. Yeah, I think let's touch base afterwards and, and talk and get you connected. So thank you. Thank you for your energy. That's wonderful. Somebody who wants to help. Never going to turn that down. We'll take it. <laughs> Do we have another question? Yes, ma'am. So we have another text question. Uh, CMHA housing isn't humane. I work for a nonprofit that engages with families at a shelter, and they are on extended wait lists for housing that not only is not passing inspections for lead poisoning, but cockroaches and unsafe conditions. Mm. How can we make our housing safer and healthier? Wow, that's, that's a big question because CMHA is really federally run, correct? Well, it's run by Jeff Patterson here locally, and it, oh, okay. it's an incredible organization. They get a lot of federal funding from Secretary Marsha Fudge. Okay. Um, and I would say, you know, I'd love to learn more about the specific concerns. I know they've done great work, and there's still much more work to be, be done. We need more and more safe, affordable housing in Cleveland. We've got to be prepared, got to be prepared to house more and more folks, especially as um, the global climate gets worse. Well, you know, you've talked a lot here today about the different focus when things impact people in the minority community. Is this another area that falls under that umbrella? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the, the challenges in uh, housing from lead poisoning, they impact that, that Cleveland Crescent, that, that C-shaped area of neighborhoods on the east side of Cleveland that have been historically and presently segregated to, to black Clevelanders. Um, Underinvested in due to genera generational wealth and, and generational apathy towards, towards our neighbors. And so that's the work we need to do. The mayor, with his focus on the southeast side of Cleveland, is very intentional. We, you know, the focus has, has been on whiter parts of Cleveland for, for too long, and we've really got to focus investment on the southeast side of Cleveland to help. Were you surprised by that information that came in in that text message question, or have you heard these the stories Regarding before? CMHA in particular? Yeah. Um, yeah, it surprises me some. I, you know, I know we have challenges with with CMHA housing, but I know the leadership there, and I trust them, and so I'm I'm sure we can work towards a solution. Okay. Our next question. That was actually one of my questions. I texted it in. Um, oh, no, you you were the texter. Yeah. Thank well, you. Let's, let's <laughs> um, yeah. In that regard, I've heard. I I work for non. My name is Sally Gabra. I work for a nonprofit called Food Strong. Um, we do free health screenings at a shelter and a community center on the east side and then at a farmer's market on the east side. Um, and so I look at the data from our health screenings. I talk, I'm like the social, I graduated degree in social work, so I talk to the clients as a follow-up recommendation to what to do next. Um, a lot of people don't have access to health care. Um, we'll be the first people, we work with Case Western PA students to do the screenings. Um, a lot of people have white coat syndrome. Um, so what does that hard. mean? So they, essentially white coat syndrome is they've had a bad experience within a medical field that um, they don't want to go back because 
of the inequities that they faced. Um, and I've heard a majority of African American and people of color say that they don't feel safe or just feel demeaned because of how medical rhetoric, like how the like doctors are talking to them, they're not being respected, they're just talked down to. So that mm -hmm. starts one of the like inequalities. I see, and that's called white coat syndrome. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so I also, so at the shelter, um, they're not allowed to have food um, because it went against health code violations. All the food got bad in the fridge. So I had a dad of like three kids um, tell me that he has so much money in food stamps, but nowhere to put the food. Mm. That's very sad. And the food that they serve at the shelter and the food that they serve at the pantry that I work at is all aiding the um, increase of BMI, blood pressure, and blood sugar. So meanwhile, we're doing the screenings, consulting about helping them, but they're also receiving food that just makes it worse, yeah. So you're saying there's a disconnect yeah. between the service providers. Worse than that, worse than a disconnect. How, how is it worse? Um, I mean, it just, so for instance, the food is usually donated by the Cleveland Food Bank or whatever they have, like at the pantry. Um, I had a gentleman walk out, it wasn't, he, he got yelling, he started yelling at us, but we were just an outside entity doing the screenings. Um, so the food was expired from like 2022 and 2021 and came out screaming mm. mad because how, how dare a place serve food from a pantry that's expired. You wouldn't serve it, you wouldn't eat it yourself. Same thing with the housing. You wouldn't live there yourself if you're a landlord. Why would you allow families and kids growing up in the society, especially people of color that are minorities, dealing with these inequities, getting displaced from housing, like going through trauma, you know, whatever it is in their life, why would you put people in these situations that you wouldn't want to live yourself? Those are great issues. Do you have a specific question for Dr. Margolius? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but thank you. What are we well, doing? Can, what are we doing to be better? Yeah, now I can respond to that. Okay. Thanks. So that wouldn't be CMHA just just first because I, I want to make sure that you know they're they're um, represented here. They do the the housing, you know, affordable housing. Um, the some of the shelters yeah, are tough places to experience and we need to do better. We need to invest more in them and the people who live there. Um, it's, it's something that we as a community need to think about and have urgency about, uh, just like a lot of these other issues. Um, you know, the second thing I'll just point out, um, food is so important to health and a person's ability to grow their own food uh, eat locally sourced food. It, that's that's all part of what we call food justice. And Food Strong, the organization that that Sally works for, is doing incredible work in that in that space, teaching students at CMSD uh, how to make their own food, um, so that it sets them up for success later in life as well. And uh, so I really applaud the work that we're doing there. And I'd love to know specifics after the talk and see how we can help. And before we go to the next question, I know we've talked a lot in Cleveland about different communities being food deserts. You know, to her point about people not being, have, being able to have access to good food, how are we doing in Cleveland on that issue of food deserts? 
So there are neighborhoods in Cleveland that have really bad food access. And um, I have learned and come around to this, this amazing expression of that's a food apartheid rather than a food desert, because a food desert sort of blames the neighborhood, whereas a food apartheid blames the system of oppression that created those neighborhoods with low food access. And so- Interesting, we, I'm gonna have to adopt that one, right? food apartheid. And so okay. the work is you know, food justice, food sovereignty to end food apartheid. And we've got a, uh, we just got a big grant from a national organization called Build Health that will work to help create a grocery store food co-op in the Central and Kinsman neighborhood. And that's just one example of many things we're doing, including we've got a new local food system strategies coordinator that we brought onto our department, Zainab Pixler in the back there, um, who is gonna lead this work for our department, so. So have we improved in terms of lessening the number of food apartheid areas? So, I listed my strategic priorities with the mayor who signed off on them, and one of mine is end food apartheid. You know, uh, they're supposed to be kind of concrete next steps that we can do, and every month I get to update this this priority tracker, and so. Oh, what'd you it, tell the mayor the last time? When I get an end of food apartheid, <laughs> you know, I can't say that, check, you know, we, we've done that, and so okay. there's a lot more work to do. We, we need to make more progress there. Okay, we're gonna move to our next question. I thank you. Um, how is Cleveland doing as far as prenatal health care and keeping the maternal death rate under control or more reduced? And infant mortality, you're right. referring to? Right. Yeah. Thanks, Aunt Marcia, for that question. Um, so um, unfortunately, black infant mortality rate in, in Cleveland remains about three to four times higher than, than white infant mortality rate. Um, and so. Uh, that remains a huge problem uh, for our city and residents. There are great organizations doing work to improve that. I'll name Moms First, which is the City of Cleveland Department of Public Health program that's been here for over 20 years, serving over 500 clients a year with at-home visitation community health workers uh, to help connect people to prenatal care and make sure that they're heard. Now, in that space, we know that doulas work right? The people who work with moms who are at risk and, and work with them before birth and stay through the first year of the baby's life, we know that that works, right? Absolutely. And we had a doula for, for our birth. Uh, one, one of them are sitting over there. Um, and so, yeah, doulas work. Birthing Beautiful Communities is an incredible organization in town that, that has a doula program. And the Moms First program that we have will help connect people to, to additional programs as well. It's, it's such a fantastic program. These programs are fantastic. So what's keeping us from taking these programs and, and, and amping them up? Since we know it's proven. It's a proven strategy that works. So yeah. what's standing in the way? Structural racism is, is the main cause. So when we look at generational wealth between white families and black families over the last 50 years, that, that gap is not closing. For every $1 that a white family has, a black family has 12 cents. That is the number one predictor of, of health. And so we Income will, inequality is basically Income inequality from structural racism, from slavery, Jim Crow laws, to uh, unfair uh, distribution of GI benefits, to redlining, to all of the other topics that we've been talking about today. That's what's holding folks back. And we'll continue to amp up our programs. But in the meantime, at the same time, we've got to create more opportunities for generational wealth for families who are black in Cleveland. So what you're saying is it's really the undercurrent 
of all of these issues, pretty much, that we've talked about today is income inequality. The most effective public health intervention that's been proposed out there is, is reparations. Reparations. So, Wow, you know, now you're starting something there. That's right. Talking about reparations now. <laughs> so you'll hear us. Ready? You know, is the doing, community ready to talk about that? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> you know, you'll hear us doing the work that we're doing within the department, and we're proud of that work, and we know that we are increasing life expectancy of Clevelanders, um, but we've got to continue to advocate for, for this, for this so, other so higher level work. So are you advocating for reparations? I am right now advocating for reparations, but I, you know, I think we need to continue to communicate it as a, a public health intervention to make it more mainstream. But hopefully you'll be hearing more and more about that as a public health intervention you know, across the country. I see they've taken the, the mic away, so I think, is that my cue that it's time to wrap? All right, this has been a great conversation. Thank you to Dr. David, Mar David Margolius for joining us at the City Club today. Can we get another hand? Today's forum is part of the City Club in the community, presented in partnership with Bank of America. It's also part of the City Club's Health Innovation Series with Medical Mutual. The City Club is grateful for the continued support for each of these organizations. There are more Free Friday forums coming up in August at the City Club right here in the plaza at Playhouse Square. On Friday, August 18th, the City Club will hear from experts from the city, NOACA, and more on the impact of climate change on air quality, from wildfire smoke that's impacted us all at the end of June to increased pollen counts in ozone. Then on Friday, August 25th, we'll learn about all the new central Central Villa 25 Project and Hispanic Entrepreneurship and Investment with Janice Contreras with the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. You can learn about all of these forums and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Dr. Margolius, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.